welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Hello. Now, before I kick off, I should explain this is being recorded via Skype. So please expect some quality control issues. And today on Conversations with Peter Wood, I have a guest online who, well, I have a history with going back quite a few years. His name is Spike Coburn or Andrew Coburn to the rest of the world. And I've known Spike since I was about 13 or 14. Now, uh, we couldn't really have been any more different. I grew up on a farm and wanted to get off and become an artist. Spike grew up in a city and all he ever wanted to do was get onto a farm, as indeed he did. Spike ended up farming in Ambuquis, which is the area where I grew up and then moved to the Philippines after a little sojourn in London as a garden boy. In the Philippines, he got a job working for Philip Morris, training farmers to grow tobacco, ironically creating competition for the Zim farmers back home. And of course, this caused a certain amount of discontent in Mbukwis, the very area, remember, where he had been trained. A little more of that later. Spike uh, worked in a very remote part of the Philippines called Isabella, which he named his daughter after. And his only companion was a Franciscan priest five hours away. He then moved to the UK under Rothmans, but it seemed Asia was in his blood. So he moved back to Asia, to Indonesia, for the tobacco company Samporna and has lived on Lombok for 24 years with his very long-suffering wife, Felicity, and his two kids, Jack and Isabella. Spike speaks perfect, fluent Bahasa Indonesia, as well as any local, and is known as Mr. Lombok. So that's the longest intro I've ever had to do. Spike, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. No, thank you, Pete. I, I sound much more interesting than I am. <laughs> let's let's backtrack a little bit. So, you uh, went to board at Salu House at Prince Edward School. When was when was that? I, I was a day scholar in my early days, and then at the end of school, I, I was sick of hitchhiking home after rugby at about six o'clock. So, I decided to become a board, and that was much easier. You just walked home. You just walked to the hostel and that was that. Well, yeah, okay. I don't know if it was that much easier, but, you know, and we were in the same class, which, uh, well, we, we first met in Form 1, was it? That's right, Joe. Yeah, we were but in Form 1. For the, 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 the millennials that I think we would have been about 13 years old then, yeah? That's right. That's... And, and we, knew actually, we actually knew each other from before that from uh, Ben and Jenny Norton, who used to go out and stay with. They lived in Mbukwes. 
And I think, um, I think I, I felt that you were a bit of a ruffian, which is pretty rich, all things considered. I hung out with a gang called the Hoods. But I mean, you were you were kind of rougher than the rest of us. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I don't know how you judge rough, but I mean, probably. No, it's because I, I did boxing and I had a few fights, I think. But, uh, and, and, and you were willing to stand up for yourself. So, uh, yeah, I know, I probably shouldn't have done so much of that, but... Well, no, well, thank God you did, actually. And, and, and interestingly, but our, our own families, the Woods and the Coburns, I mean, they go back much further. I mean, both of our dads are from pioneering stock. Um, tell, us, tell me more about this, because you seem to know more about this than I do. I know that my mum's parents came in around about 1892, but my, my dad was a little bit later. Yeah, well, we, we, my father's family came out, so great-grandfather in about 1902. But I do remember in Form 1, my father asking who was in my class, and I said there was a guy called Wood. And he said, I remember his father, Monkey Wood. And uh, there was another man who was a bloke called Hoffman, and he knew his father had got the best results in the Commonwealth or something like that. So I mean, there, were, there were lots of, you know, Prince Edward had that thing. You know, my father went there, my grandfather went there, so... Yeah, I don't, I don't think my dad got the best results in the Commonwealth. That certainly wasn't him. No, no, I, I ordered my father. So, uh, but uh, they they originally both from the Mazoe Valley, and then we went off to Karoi, and I mean, basically, your dad went to he opened up uh, Masitui. And Mazoe Valley was, I mean, you know, it's all you know, Mazoe Valley itself was quite wild back then. But I know that my grand and grand granddad John and uh, John's parents set out from Bulawayo to Mashonaland in a kind of jalopy, like a bit like the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, mind you, it was the it was the recession and the Great Recession. And yeah, I think my 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 dad's two sisters, Nan and Maggie, were alive. I don't think Archie was born. I think Archie was born in Missouri. And they had a little Jack Russell um, and one tea break. They lost Jock somewhere between the low felt and the high felt. And they couldn't wait any longer. And they just had to drive off without him. And John was crying in the back. And he said it was the only time he had ever cried in public, you know, public being with his mum and dad. And then eventually he sort of looked behind him and there a little dot in the distance. And there was this little dog, Jock, just sprinting like, Fucking crazy after the car. And anyway, they managed to save Jock, and he, he ended up uh, going to Missouri. Anyway, I digress. Uh, I, dig I digress. So I want to actually talk about PE or Prince Edward School, which is the school uh, where both of us went to. Um, it, it was undoubtedly one of the top schools in the country, wasn't it? No, we're very lucky to be able to get there. I mean, if I'd gone to the school, I should have. I probably I would have gone to Cramble. I was lucky my father went there because it was all done by zoning. And, and I uh, shouldn't I shouldn't laugh, but you yeah. You shouldn't laugh, but Cramble was sort of, you know, RLI was the University of Cramble. So, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I went to P and uh, lucky I did because I've got great friends there and we were lucky with lots of great teachers and yeah, some not so good, but... Uh, I that's, yeah, that's... And, 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 and for the listeners, just to give you some sort of uh, Wikipedia crap, 
Uh, Prince Edward was established in 1898. It was officially opened by King Edward VIII in 1925, who was at the time the Prince of Wales. And so that's why the school adopted the crown and three feathers as the badge. But you know, Spike, like, like, like all schools, it had both good and bad teachers, didn't it? Oh, it had great tea. I mean, I, I think back on things, the subjects you like now. I mean, I, I liked English because of a chap called John Haig and, you know, history because we yeah, had great teachers. And But, you know... I, Tell us more about John Hayes, though. I mean, you know, I mean, what an incredible man. I remember him. I mean, I think he is the greatest teacher of all time for me, you know. Well, I, I, you, know, I, you know, David Fox says the same. I, I think anyone who's in his class, whether you're good at English or not, you were definitely interested in what he had to say. And he was one of those guys who, he was a great sportsman himself, but he wanted you to also be interested in, in literature and, and uh, theatre and all these things that we thought were quite girlyish you know he and he introduced some incredible plays uh, to the school um you know in, in a in a format that no one had ever seen before like in the round and things like that uh, but you know and i also remember he hired the national gallery and he put on a production of othello did you go to that production and probably uh, not yeah and, and um well, and also, you know, it was the first time I'd ever seen a, a black man kiss a white woman. I mean, we were all shocked. There was this audible sh sort of gasp throughout the audience. I mean, he did, he, did, uh, he did enjoy putting people on the spot, didn't he? No, he was. That's, that's why when you look back at him, in fact, the film Robin Williams was in, I've forgotten the name of it, but he, John Haig was in that sort of, mode really where he took people oh, out there, there totally out there uh, totally dead out. the dead poet society there we are and 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 then he and then the, you know but there were others who were equally as extraordinary i thought i mean mrs ball doreen ball um and and i mean she was a farmer's wife and then she rocked up quite late in our our education probably in the when we were about sort of 15 and she had these pointy shoes and sharp stilettos and red, red bow lips. And she was wearing a cape, you know. I mean, she was incredibly stylish. And yeah, she, she, she ended up becoming our cross-country trainer. I know. She, and she was a very, very good... And cross-country was probably about the second most important sport after... No, maybe water polo and rugby, I suppose, first. Oh, come on, water polo. Cross, even no, cross-country. Excuse you know, I mean, it was rugby and then cross country, I think. Yes, yeah, I, I agree with you. And and you and I were both in the team. And she took the team on that year to winning, I think, the school championships, didn't she? Yeah, we, we won at Peterhouse that year where we sort of, where you raced everyone. You just, you went just racing the white schools. You raced against the mission schools, Akrakodzi, Bernard Mazeki. So to win at Peterhouse was something quite special because... Generally, they Africans are better long distance runners than we are. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, she being, trained us so well, and we all ran together. You see that we had a bit of a plan. I think I was seventh in the country, but that was seventh uh, white person in the country. <laughs> <laughs> and she she used to take us she used to take us to the Borrowdale race course. Obviously, when the horses weren't racing, and 
just send us running around and round on those spongy lawns, you know, around uh, and around. The race course and the copy. The copy oh, was the other, the other killer. She was a brutal trainer, but uh, it, 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 we loved her. I, we absolutely loved her. And, and she also took us to Blackford Bee Farm, which uh, at the time was um, the Tobacco Training College, wasn't it? What was it called? That's right, but, Blackford Bee, for training young tobacco farmers. Instead of going and doing a three-year degree, they went and did a practical sort of 12-month course at Blackford Bee. And a lot of a lot of great farmers came out of Blackford Bee. Blackford Bee was actually, um, how do you say, would you say founded, started by my great-grandfather, Tom Burnett, who it was actually a, uh, it was a dairy farm at the time. So when my mum was a kid, she used to go out there and he built all these dry stone walls and everything. He came from uh, Derbyshire. And he built all these dry stone walls and everything, a bit like in England, which is why the, the farm was so beautiful, I think. Well, I mean, what's interesting is Charlotte Duncan's wife has done the same for their cattle holding and dip. Which Absolutely. Is and done a brilliant job at it. She's made those rock walls. I quite like going past them. Yeah, she's done a great job. I mean, going back to the school, though, you know, school in general. And I, I look, I don't want to go into... I don't want to dwell on bullying because it sounds like, you know, I, I kind of deserved it if I if I go on about bullying too much. But it was bloody hard, wasn't it? You know, there was there were a lot of there were a lot of things you had to get through at, at boarding school. Was well, there's a, I mean, Prince Edward was a you know a boys' school it was rugby. Everyone everyone is out there to sort of prove themselves, I think, you know, and if you, if you got in the way, they gave you a smack or, or vice versa, whatever. I mean, it was that. In front of, of the teachers as well. It was perfectly I mean, right. Okay. And I remember we had to do, I don't know if you had to, because you came a little bit later, but at 13, we had to do these things called rat races and the, all the floors and the dorms were obviously wooden and you'd have to do these races under the beds and you had to push a penny on your nose and get it to the end of the room. And it was a long dorm. And by the end, your your nose was completely bloody. But in the meantime, just to make it a little bit more difficult, they used to fill duffel bags full of rugby boots and beat the shit out of you as you went between the beds. It was, it was fucking brutal, really. Well, yeah, and, and tennis balls and socks and things like oh, that. Oh, my God. You know, they were, it was always the odd clown who took it. You know, he, instead of putting a tennis ball in the sock, he'd put a cricket ball in. And, you know, that, you know, usually... You and know, not that, what little uh, brains you uh, had out of you. And, well, he, he obviously had no brains either. I mean, that, that kind of thing, I just, I couldn't stand it. It did toughen you up, though. It, it certainly toughened you up. I, I, I got the most canings um, from Mr. Cock, who is our head of house in the whole term and I was so proud of it at the time I remember sort of wanting to tell my dad that you know I was the naughtiest kid of the uh, in the year you know it's kind of like a a, a Victor Lodorum thing yeah <laughs> being naughty no but I, was, I suppose you because you bunked out quite a lot you you like drinking and smoking and so there was a lot of opportunity for you to which you weren't doing but we did bunk out a lot didn't we no we bunked out quite a lot I mean yeah. uh, yeah, I was never a smoker, luckily, even though I've been involved in the game for 40 years now growing the stuff. But mm. you know, probably that's why I've never got anywhere. 
No, well, my brother is the same as you. You know, he's never smoked a cigarette in his life. But, you know, talking about bunking out, I mean, you know, tell me about that one weekend we had. Um, so, okay, so just to set the scene, we have very good friends called the Moorcrofts. And the Moorcrofts' son, George, who was our age, um, they had a flat across the rugby fields from the school, which, funnily enough, was owned by my dad, and they were renting it. Um, it was very convenient to the school. And, um, well, take it away, Spike. No, well, I mean, we've, George's flat over the road was a <clears throat> convenient retreat. We'd meet up with all our friends and have drinks. And, you know, if you had a girlfriend, you'd bring her there. And it was sort of, you know, our escape. Can I just stop you there? Mona, if you're listening to this, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Carry on. No, well, Mona, well, she, she knows about it because she actually caught us. And she 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 found a, salu, a sock with a Coburn Salou house on it. So she phoned my mother and said, uh, Spike is turning our place into a whorehouse. And, uh, I mean, you know... I, I was there. I was probably one of the only ones without a girlfriend. But uh, uh, you know, George was there, but denied it. And uh, I don't anyway, think I had a girlfriend. Moorcroft didn't really like like me for a while, but we we eventually became friends. And I, I really like. I mean, George and Mona are great friends. I think if I ever see them. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely certain no one, you know, sort of held grudges in that country. You just simply couldn't. Um, it was quite a, I remember it being quite a bad weekend because we ended up being dobbed in um, and we almost got expelled. It was quite a, I, I remember that my dad made me drive over to the Moorcroft's farm, Berry's Post, um, when I, on the, on the next uh, exit weekend uh, to apologize to them. So, you know, anyway. I suppose kids look at that, that sort of thing now and say, well, you did nothing wrong. You just got drunk, you know, and got yeah, off. With well, the, the next weekend, uh, George took us all down to Kareeb and rolled the truck. We were lucky we weren't killed, you know, when some elephants were in the road and everyone was thrown out the tro- truck. At a, you know, but uh, so I didn't endear myself to the Moorcroft. You know, <laughs> I, I wasn't driving either. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Okay, so not, you know, I'm making out that um, we were really naughty. We were really naughty. We were also really clever. We did work hard. In fact, I think, and I I don't know the details of this, and I'm sure you do, but I think our year did O-level English literature and English language earlier, a year earlier than any other year in the whole country and everyone passed. Yeah, we did. We did English, and we also, the first set maths also did maths in Form 3 as well. So we com- we weren't completely useless. Were but we? I do remember one of our teachers, Ma Marsdorp, saying that we were the thickest 401 she had ever taught. So... But <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't win. And then finally... When, com- but the class ahead of us was very clever, and I think the one after us was okay. And and finally, completely exasperated, the headmaster, Ray Suttle, who I just did not like at all, uh, called me into his office, which is the first time he had ever spoken to me in my entire time at school, despite the fact that I was at the top of the cross-country running team. But anyway, let's move on from that. He called me in 
And he said that uh, you're just doing nothing at the school. You're not bringing anything to the school. Um, you know, there are, you know, 180 black kids out there who would rather take your place. So I want you out and I want you to leave. And um, I, I remember being, I was completely shocked by, but I also remember rejoicing inside. And I said, well, okay, fine, I'll go. So I don't know, I don't think I was actually expelled, but I was I was asked to leave by the headmaster under no uncertain terms. And that day, you and I, you as, as my sidekick, you and I walked across town to the army recruitment barracks to sign up. And... I, I remember it clearly, yeah. I, well, I don't, You could, because, you know, it was all a bit of a blur for the next few weeks for me. What what happened then? Yeah, I remember you decided to leave, and I thought, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't love school either, and uh, my dad had died, I was about 17, and so I, I thought I was the main man, and I thought I'd also go along to the army, because we were all quite, you know, hooked into the old Rhodesian propaganda, you know, to... We couldn't wait to get into the army and go and give it a go. But uh, so off I went, and uh, but uh, you signed on and ended up in the RLI six months later. I, I my uncle came in at a chat to me, and I had great respect for him. He farmed in Norton, a chap called Tim Riley, who's in the uh, the Chindits. So you know he won an MC for the Chindits, and he said to me, "Don't be a stupid bugger. Go back to school, and then you can go to the army." And uh, well, thank God, thank God for Tim Riley. I did go back. Yeah, to absolutely. Yeah. He ended up at, at UZ basically. And I ended up uh, going going then. into three commander Rhodesian Light Infantry. You ended up with A levels. I ended up serving pizza in London. Yeah, no, but I did end up as a garden boy later on. So. <laughs> yes, but you did end up with a garden boy for the the Actons or someone, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a great story of your mum's and I never never denied it. I mean, it always sort of, uh, I did, yeah, I did a few interesting little jobs for certain people and, you know, I remember being a gardener for... And this is in England, of course. In England, yeah, just on a penthouse near Hyde Park and we, we carried up about eight tons of soil to make a garden up there. And I remember... Oh these two beautiful Iranian girls asking us if we wanted a cup of tea and, you know, out came some tea and cake. And there I was just like a, a garden boy in Zimbabwe, as my dad said I'd end up like. So there I was. And we had a little bit of a chuckle. How did the acting thing come into the whole sort of picture? Or was that my mum? No, yeah. I went and did some work on quite a smart garden. Anyway, your mum took it upon it that it was the acting garden so i never denied it this is lord acton yeah yeah well no lord, lord acton actually was a mafia relative uh who lived in ambukwis well he they, well was, i mean the mazoe yeah. yes and uh, mrs mafia was an acton that's right but her father they they farmed in mazoe and then she married lotsy mafia when he escaped from hungary after the second world war that's right, yeah, stuck, that's stuck his crown jewels in his mouth, which takes some, you know, must have taken some, <laughs> well, that's and, and swam the Danube. Is that, yeah, is that Ma true? The Mafis lost all their land in Hungary and then came up, set up in Zimbabwe, worked hard for 40 years and then lost all their farms there. So, I mean, he, he had a double whammy. 
God, God. And then there was no Danube to swim in bloody Zimbabwe, was there? No. Yeah. So after that, then, you bought a farm from the head of the Zimbabwe CIO, which, uh, for the listener, that is the, help me, the criminal central. CIO is the Central Intelligence Organization. Anyway. Which is like CIA. Wanted to buy a farm, and there was a farm getting sold in Harare South uh, by a, a Mr. Matonga. And uh, unknown to me, he was the head of the CIO. And I met this chap, and we agreed on a price. And, uh, you know, he was a good, honest bloke. I always remember the daughters speaking to my mum and saying, Please tell your son to buy this farm. We hate living out here. We, you know, we want to go back to town. Anyway, Mr. Matongo sold it to me. And, uh, we basically fixed it up, put some new dams in, fixed it up, got it going, and then basically lost did it live, in about did 2002. You actually, but did you actually live on it? No, I never lived on it because I was away. You were in, uh, you were in, in Indonesia, Indonesia then? I was in Indonesia, but I was always coming back. It's lucky I didn't come back. I'm amazed I didn't. You know, mm. That's my sort of luck. But So we lost it in 2002, but I'm... Mr. Matonga, I'm sure if he'd been alive, I could have spoken to him because it was a fair deal. You know, we agreed on things and he might have had some sway, but I think he fell out with Bob and he got knocked off. And But I was always jealous of all the farm managers, particularly the ones in Mbukwis. Not, uh, you know, particularly, particularly in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, because they all seem to be driving around in, in mercedes Mercedes and BMWs, although they might have been secondhand. I don't know. I think I was just a bit jealous, I suppose. But um, uh, you well, know, you you worked there as well. What was your? Well, experience? I did, but you know, I wasn't quite a manager. I was sort of more of an assistant than a manager. So uh, after my second season, I had enough money to to bugger off and travel around the world. But you know, most people, your your dream was to sort of buy a Datsun 2000 or something like that, and. Uh, <laughs> We got quite well paid for doing it, but people worked bloody hard. Yeah, they did work hard. And I'm not saying they didn't work hard, you know. I mean, I worked hard as well. I did double shifts every day serving pizza. Um, what was your, tell me about your experience about, um, um, did you work for Bill Francis? or did No, you... no, I didn't. I worked for a chap called J.J. Hammond. But, you know, Bill was one of the, well, I suppose he's probably one of the, eminent farmers of Ambukwis, he definitely was one of the most uh, advanced guys. He was the first guy to put in pivots and bring in Charolais cattle and bring in big, uh, big mechanized farming. Our, our bill was, was quite a... And quite he was a, the, cha- the chairman of the Rhodesian or Zimbabwean... I think CFU, I think CFU or ZTA or something like that, but he, he was quite high up there, Bill, but he was, he was a very good farmer. And I mean, actually, your brother, Duncan, worked for, for Bill. It was one of the places you went to work if you wanted to learn something. And uh, But you had a bit of a falling out with him, didn't you? Well, we just had a bit of an argument at at a wedding at Nina Ferks's and uh, yeah, it ended up in a bit of a scuffle at a wedding. But that's it's, that's quite a Zimbabwean thing, really. But uh, anyway, I, I never lost it. Everyone else was very pissed off with me. The only guy that wasn't pissed off with me was Bill. I don't and, think I don't think John would. No, no, John Wood wasn't. No, John and, and Ben Norton, all that, we were right there. I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, it was, we had a well, discussion that, about smallholders and commercial they, farming and, you know, me being an enemy of the state in a way, growing tobacco 
elsewhere. But no, look, I always had great respect for Bill, and I still do. Let's uh, let's talk about your wedding to Felicity. So now, apparently, uh, well, okay, here's the thing. I was living in London at the time. Uh, I was quite broke because I was uh, in my third, my final year uh, university. um, And you invited me out to Nairobi for your wedding as your photographer. I think that was, you knew that was the only way you could get me there was to pay for my ticket as a form of payment. Apparently, and I heard this years later, it really upset me, actually. I was quite, I was quite, apparently I was a bit of an aggressive photographer. (laughs) No, but no one was listening to you when you're trying to take all these photographs and set everything up and do everything beautifully. And no one was taking in, paying any attention. Yeah, there's, there's a whole then, group then you... of fucking, you know, there's a whole group of fucking drunken bloody Zimbabwean and Kenyan people, you know. And I was just trying to say, could you please just come in a little bit? Could you please just come in on the fucking iPad? You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I do remember that. And everyone was quite scared of Pete because he shot on them that time. And then they jumped around a bit and, and nobody took that beautiful no, old photographic album. It's actually quite something. Eight or nine months later, yeah. Well, you know, I was in my final year at college. I had, you know, I had other things to finish off. But no, no, I didn't, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize how important wedding photos are. You know, I should have made that because I, I, what I would like to say to the listener is that you know, I went back to college. I I developed the film myself. I printed the film myself. I found this 18, what, 18-something uh, wedding album, which is the same date. It was, it's was a wedding album that was the same date 100 years earlier from your wedding, which I think is exactly. kind, of, kind of amazing, actually. I've still got it. I know they're wonderful black and white. Well, I hope you've still got it. We have, and Felicity, you know, and I remember you said I, I didn't get any good ones of you, but I didn't have much to work with. <laughs> it was... The, the, the reception was held at the house next door to Karen Blixen's house in the Ngong Hills, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. yeah. No, I've forgotten the lady's name, but uh, she... Yeah, uh, and it, it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful old colonial house. And and um, we spent a lot of time at the Mathega Club of white mischief fame, didn't we? Where, where they didn't allow uh, cameras, which was a bit annoying for me, but I think I did take some pictures. They allowed me some pictures in the private dinner, which I've never, I can't remember ever seeing them, actually. Did I ever give them to you? Uh, I, look, I don't remember, but I, I do remember you being there in your little black number. <laughs> what do you mean my little black number? What do you mean my I, little you, black you number? You had a, a, cling, a slinky sort of black outfit for that, oh, that special. God. Whatever it was, it did was I really? You, did looked, I, you looked artistic. So, you know, uh, artistic. Okay, got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Did I embarrass everyone? Not at all. Not at all. People loved it. If I mean, anyone's gonna, you know, you cannot embarrass anyone in the Mathega Club. You know what I mean? Well, exactly. So, I mean, it, it fitted. It fitted the place. There, was, there were about forty people, and I think everyone then took the sleeper, that wonderful train to Mombasa, where we then took a Watatu to Melindi, uh, to Watamu near Melindi, 
um, by that stage, you had gone off on your honeymoon to Lamu. Yeah. And no, Lamu was wonderful. I mean, I'd, I'd like to go back there one day. I, I, was, I always with, remember my friend Brian McDonough wanted to come on the, the on honeymoon <laughs> with me. And I said to him, Brian, I, I can't. He said, I'll hide at the back of the plane. And I said, look, Felicity's going to see you there. I said, okay, you can come. But I said, remember when you get married, look behind you on the seat and that will be where I am. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Brian wasn't exactly a shrinking violet, was he? <laughs> so, so, you know, the interesting thing that that entire wedding party were on that Watatu um, and that same day someone bought a newspaper uh, and there was the headlines were wedding party killed in Watatu on the way to Melindi. Do you remember that? Well, maybe you don't remember that. And I often wonder whether anyone thought that was us, but no one ever asked. Yeah, no, I, I was on the on the honeymoon, and then then I came down and joined you down in Melindi, and uh, I mean that's you know where you probably met Charlotte for the first time as well. No, you probably met Charlotte in London. I think. Yeah, so Char Charlotte was uh, your wife's uh, sister, and she has now become my brother's wife. So you know, wow, what comes around goes around, and I didn't bring any uh, swimming trunks, so I walked around the whole week in Watamu, in Waifront. In you know, how I managed to do that, I have no idea. There were 40 people in this beautiful thatch house, which obviously was owned by friends of yours. Um, absolutely, right on the beach. Right, right, oh, right, the, right, right on the beach. Johnstons, yeah, they, they'd gone there all their school lives or something like that. I don't know. Apparently, the beach boys in Melindy still speak about you. Um, <laughs> Okay, so I'll just, for the listener, I'll just sort of give a little sort of background on why they would. So there were 40 people, people sleeping on the veranda in their rooms and everything. And then slowly people started to peter off and go back to their countries and to their jobs and to their lives. And suddenly I was the last one left in the house. And it was only for one night. And I took a wander down the beach on my own, probably in my wife's friends. And I, I got cruised by this absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous Italian guy called Gonzalo de Conciglia. And Gonzalo was uh, from Napoli and from a terribly, terribly posh family. In fact, I've got a feeling he was from the, um, the, the, the Naples Mafia. What are they called? Anyway, I can't think right now. Anyway. He would spend six months, and get this, I mean, you know, in this day and age, um, he would spend six months of the year in Napoli playing the harpsichord, and then six months of the year in, uh, on the beach in uh, Watamu writing Italian poetry, because, you know, like everyone's heard of Italian poetry. And anyway, I, I picked him up and took him back to the house, snuck him back into the house, thinking that the staff, you know, the staff were actually having their siesta. And anyway, we had we, we had a fantastic evening together. I'm not going to talk about that. But the next morning, thinking I had got away with it, there on the, di on the dining room table for breakfast were two pawpaws and two bacon and eggs and, uh, and two, two cups of coffee you know, so they all knew what was going on. It was quite funny, actually. But uh, but Gonzalo, being quite wealthy, 
put me on a first class uh, sleeper all the way back to um, from uh, uh, from the coast all the way back up to uh, yeah yeah but it was never going to work out it was never gonna I, I, it was never gonna work out because I was going through my you know hardcore um, dance music phase and harpsichords were just not part of it no, no, I, I remember the era. Anyway, so you, but anyway, but you finally got your wedding pictures eight months later or nine months later or something. Um, and now, Spike, now that the kids have flown the coop, uh, do you plan to stay on in Lombok? Well, I mean, look, I, I thought I have probably... the most stunning home I've seen in years and years. I mean, it's after for the listener, his, he has a swimming pool that goes right the way through the middle of the home. It sounds, well, it sounds terribly Jewish, but it's not. Uh, the swimming pool that goes right through the middle of the home with chandeliers hanging down. It is absolutely gorgeous. Anyway, tell me. Well, it's not a bad place to live, but I'll, I'll probably end up here. I've probably got a year, year and a half. I'm 56 now, so... And uh, then I, God knows what. I, I'll... I'll always like Indonesia. We've got a little seed company going and, you know, we live in Perth in WA. And then I also quite like Zimbabwe still. It's my tribe. I, I like going back there, even though it's absolutely chaotic. I always hope it will get better. So, yeah, and I, it, you I, know, it can't get worse. And, uh, but a lot of people tell me it can, but uh, it, it's, it's a great shame. I love still going back there. I'm, I'm so glad that you have so much uh, faith in Zimbabwe. It's brilliant. You know, and I think on that note, we should end the session of conversations. No, thank you, Pete. Yeah, Spike Good Coburn. You know, I mean, it's it's been really fun. You know, it's been brilliant. You know, it's a, been a real f***ing pleasure to chat to you, old boy. No, same thing. Same, Pete. Thanks yeah. very much. Take thank care. you so much. And, uh, and love to the family. Cheers. Bye. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.